Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business news podcast from the Business and Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Tyler Orton. Is global trade set to decline following the Americans' decision to hit Canada and other allies with metal tariffs this week? And what do Ottawa's retaliatory measures spell for relations between the two countries? Professor John Rees from the Sauter School of Business at UBC, he joins us today to break down what these steel and aluminum tariffs mean for the future of global trade. Meanwhile, the Canadian Senate votes next week on the Cannabis Act. Tantalus Labs founder and managing director Dan Sutton joins us later on to talk about what subsectors within the cannabis industry would be at risk going forward. And we're going to keep the cannabis discussion going after that with Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman. Her organization has just released a guidebook detailing how employers can manage cannabis in the workplace. Let's start, though, with John Reese from UBC. Almost immediately after the U.S. slapped metal tariffs on Canada, the EU, and Mexico on Thursday, Ottawa retaliated with countermeasure tariffs of its own. So what does this mean for the prospects of global trade? Joining us today to discuss the potential fallout, it's John Rees. He is professor over at the Sauter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. John, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Is this a true trade war? Um, well, it's starting to look like that, um, but I'm fairly optimistic that it's going to be limited to this, and then hopefully we'll um, now start to move forward and try to resolve some of these sticky trade issues. I was saying we should uh, keep checking our phones as we're talking here to see if Donald Trump has tweeted anything lately to change the ground. But w- what might change the ground? Um, well, I, unfortunately, I don't see... Um, there to be a really great scenario with Canada in the U.S. I mean, this was originally linked to NAFTA renegotiation, and that seems uh, very problematic at this stage. A deadline had passed to try and renegotiate with regard to U.S. Congress. But there has to be um, fairly ample lead time mm-hmm. before the, uh, a Mid-term. bill could get to, to Congress. And with the midterm elections mm-hmm. almost around the corner now, it's not looking so good. On the Mexican side, they have a presidential election. So it would be great if this could create an impetus to resolve NAFTA. But um, I guess, you know, the, the, betting, the, the betting odds would be that it'll be not until next year. And we potentially could have to our election with these tariffs. What about our election? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Will, election we'll here too, yeah, of exactly. course. Yeah, but what does, I guess, the United States really hope to gain from this? If we see global trade slowing down, what is the ultimate goal from the Americans' perspective? Well, I mean, you know, this is this is Donald Trump and and the the, the trade hawks uh, within his administration, and they think that this will be a bargaining chip to to get concessions. Um, it's so far done just the opposite. It's led to retaliatory tariffs, so um, it's lose lose now. You know, pretty much everybody is is worse off. I mean, including the American worker, um, steel in in the U.S. hasn't gained a lot because they're losing access to to the Canadian market and other markets, maybe the aluminum producers, but that's a pretty, in the U.S., but that's a pretty small group. We're a huge market, though, for the American steel that's coming up to Canada, though. Yeah, it's almost balanced trade. So, so you know, it's not 
as bad for our tariff or I'm sorry, our steel producers, because now they have protection. Um, but, you know, it's kind of bad for prices. You've got now, you know, 25 percent tariffs on goods and prices are going to go up on, on steel. Is it, though, that uh, is, I'm trying to get into the head of Donald Trump, and that's, of course, a highly dangerous thing to do and, and rather suspect. But is it just that the American uh, voter um, and certainly the Donald Trump voter really does believe that if you uh, create a barrier of some sort, that the American worker, the American consumer wins. Is it that lack of information that's that Donald Trump is playing into? Well, I, I mean, I think you know Donald Trump, you know, has has you know bluster and and makes uh, makes makes dem- demands and then is backs himself in a corner and and can't back down from them. Um, like with these these tariffs, it doesn't seem like he's thought this through because now you know U.S. industry you know is aghast you know that they have all these tariffs that are f- facing them. And I don't know. Eventually, the the U.S. you know voter will realize and worker will realize that this is this is not good for them. I also wonder about the reason that they're giving here, national security concerns. Is that anything of actual national security concerns going on here? Yeah, absolutely not. Now, now there is an avenue to levy tariffs when there are national um, security concerns. And uh, but if you look at the numbers, uh, the defense, U.S. defense only consumes about three percent of total U.S. steel production. So imports are not threatening um, national defense at all. In fact, Canada is considered in the U.S. industrial base. Well, so isn't isn't it that? I mean, we, we actually you know, we move parts back and forth across our borders at all times in order to uh, in order to produce uh, machinery, in order to produce uh, even part of the defense infrastructure. Why why would they? Is it just that that was the only label that could be applied? At this point, yeah, that was the only avenue to sort of legally do something like this. Now, interestingly, the retaliatory tariffs that are going to um, be be erected aren't consistent with international law. We could take this to a WTO uh, dispute resolution and say this is not legitimate. This national security um, rationale, but there's a whole process. Ultimately, we'd be, be allowed to do retaliatory tariffs, but we can't just do it right off the bat. So, um, kind of ironically, it's it's sort of Canada that stepped outside the rules of international trade on this one. But we're not likely to be critiqued internationally the way that the United States is because we, we don't appear to be the bully in this case. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, it's only um, signif- um, um, significant that, uh, that we've stepped outside, but you know, no one's going to blame, blame us because Trump is obviously mm-hmm. you know, also in some sense outside the, the rules that we've been abiding by for, for decades now. So in addition to our retaliatory metal tariffs that we impose here, uh, on July 1st, we're also looking at the imposition of other products such as American whiskey, inflatable boats, barbecues, lawnmowers, soy sauce, candy, a whole list of like disparate products here. Glad I got my inflatable boat. In the last <laughs> I, I, I wonder what's the strategy. Is there a little bit of more thought than meets the eye when it comes to Canada targeting specific sectors, specific products here with their retaliatory measures? Yeah, I haven't uh, really uh, thought that one through. I, I'd have to look at the, the, the trade numbers and why those items were uh, picked in particular. Obviously, you'd like to, to, to pick target sectors that, that, would, that would hurt um, the, the most, the U.S., and, and, and make, make, make them. Yeah, I wonder if there's a political yeah. stratagem in there where they almost identified state by state where a lot of the producers and distributors are in this case here and 
and it's like we're going to get your particular, you know, your particular uh, governor, your particular congressman, uh, in order to basically galvanize a little bit of support for Canada. Yeah, you know, to, well, to pressure the White House. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it just wasn't done at random. So there was some thought, and and for some reason, these would provide the most leverage. Which I even, I even wonder then if midterm elections are coming up for the United States as well. I mean, that's going to exert even more pressure on the Americans. Even though, I, I mean, Kirk, like you said, how can you really predict what the Trump administration is going to do next? Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, so so John, what what do you believe now this does in? A broader context, not just the NAFTA, not just the North American context, but what does the world start to believe here in terms of uh, stability around the trade picture? Well, there's um, a right to be nervous. I mean, businesses must be going nuts about this. They're trying to plan where they're going to buy goods. Um, and, you know, there's so much uncertainty that it's it's really, you know, terrible from that point of view. You know, the... the um, Unfortunately, in some sense, <laughs> um, even though it's a good thing that the economy is so ro- robust, you know that uh, that that um, uh, people are less concerned, you know, about the the yeah. fallout of a trade war because the economy is doing so well. Right. That doesn't last though forever, and I mean, most are now suggesting that economies will begin uh, after having eight nine years of pretty steady growth that we're going to see something in the way of a tailing off yeah. here in the next 18 months. Well, it just shows for the macroeconomy, you know, trade um, is not as, as, as important as, as people think, for the, uh-huh. certainly from the U.S. and Canada, you know, because we're a smaller economy and depend more on trade. It's more important for, for us. But free trade is a good thing, and we need it in the long run. So I hope people back down. And and we do resolve NAFTA, and we do eliminate these these tariffs that have been have been put up, and you know these were you know part of this this big negotiation, um, the 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 art of the deal, and then ultimately we will have a deal, um, and business can can you know proceed with you know certainty and open borders. Is this particular action here, is it without precedent, though? I'm just racking my brain for maybe other examples of decades past where we've seen similar measures go ahead, maybe on a global scale, because we're hitting Canada, we're hitting Mexico, China, the EU as well. I'm just wondering if this is, you know, parallels anything else that we've seen before. Well, we've um, the U.S. is always in Canada, and all countries have the ability to erect countervailing duties and anti-dumping duties, and and temporary um, uh, protection because of of injury to, to to industry. So those things have have happened. You know, we've seen it with softwood lumber. There's been tariffs on steel or countervailing duties or anti-dumping duties on steel for decades and decades. So we have uh, have seen this um, in in the past. Um, but in but this uh, national security concern, you know, which really can be done with with less um, oversight, you know, that's kind of a, a, a little bit new, you know. So we are in a different world with Trump being really so anti anti trade and protectionist. You know, most governments the last you know few decades have been very much pro. Exactly. I mean, it's been part of the piece of globalization, and obviously, you've been able. As a as a consumer or even as a producer to to export, taking a look at other at, at a wide range of markets now because of the uh, the diminution of trade barriers worldwide. What I wonder about now is is there enough um, nimbleness in Canadian industry 
to be able to start spotting other countries for its markets and moving toward them in the absence of a kind of a secure, stable, predictable trade environment with our neighbors to the south. Yeah, um, I, I believe so. I mean, you know, recall, you know, a decade ago or less than a decade ago, the currency was at par, which was very challenging for Canadian exporters, and 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 they they weathered that. Uh, we now have um, a deal on on TPP, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so there's going to be more opportunities in and Asia CETA, for us. CETA with and Europe, CETA, yeah. CETA mm-hmm. exists, and so um, so yeah, so yeah. I mean, businesses are good at doing doing their job, and uh, you know they would like to have access to all markets, you know, but they will they will adapt. Does it push us to get a deal with China? Um, it does. I think the last time I was on the show, I talked about the complications about rules of origin. Yeah. So if we start becoming, you know, more oriented and have more content from 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 Asia, then that puts us in some jeopardy to meet local content um, uh, requirements within within North America. So we kind of also need NAFTA to, to get resolved, and, and local content for autos is one of the, the the chief things on the negotiating table in order to know, you know, how we want to organize our our production structures. Huh. Okay, so John, uh, now we'll all check our smartphones, make sure everything we said is still <laughs> up to date. But for now, I uh, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Well, I hope it all goes away before <laughs> this this program airs. <laughs> we'll see. We'll I see. I don't know about that. That's <laughs> uh, John Reese. He is professor at the Sutter School of Business at the University of British Columbia. Stay with us. Tantalus Labs founder Dan Sutton is going to join us next. Next week, the Senate will vote on and possibly amend the Cannabis Act. Joining us to talk about what's at stake with the vote in the Red Chamber is Dan Sutton, founder and managing director at Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us as always. Glad to be here. Is this the moment? (laughs) It appears to be the moment. The moment. Okay. So we're going to have legalization of recreational cannabis in July. Well, yeah. What do you think? I think that there is still some potential risk around that timeline, specifically if there are amendments that uh, not everyone agrees upon or want to be revisited, then the Senate will continue to have to push back and forth on on those questions. Although they have slated debate this week uh, and next and have done a very efficient job at being specific as to what topics they want to debate on. But still funny things are sliding in just this morning. Uh, any brand stretching, so the use of logos and brand materials on promotional items uh, has actually been banned. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're still seeing some back and forth, but some pretty critical pieces of the legislation uh, around home growing, uh, which I'm a huge supporter of and outdoor cultivation have seemed to push through. Uh, so, it, it's it's really interesting to watch this debate go on, but I don't think we'll have quite a pure appreciation of what legalization really looks like in this country, at least for the next couple of weeks. So we've got uh, the tinkering of the act uh, through committee process to the point now where we're going to really understand what the Senate is saying about the law with the possibility that it then pitches it back to the House of Commons and throws the House of Commons into a state where it has to do some amendments and, and, and re-adoption of some measures. Do you think, though, that we get at least quite a bit of certainty next week with, with the Senate and its, its passage? We certainly will uh, get a, a lot more certainty than we've had to this point, at least from a federal perspective. Now the question becomes, 
for British Columbians, uh, how quickly will the province then adopt their Bill C-31? How fast will the Liquor Distribution Board here in British Columbia acquire cannabis? What mechanisms will they be using to distribute it and what timelines will that fall on? Mm -hmm. In terms of the Senate, what might be, in your view, the biggest sticking points with regard to the act? Uh, well, they're seemingly behind us now. Uh, I mean, I, I say that with some trepidation because there's always a chance they could throw some stuff in at the last minute. Uh, but home growing was certainly a bone of contention. And it looks as though provinces uh, may still attempt to prevent home growing. That, that's certainly been Quebec's position. Uh, so still some confusion there. Uh, and then outdoor cultivation was certainly a, a core component or perceived component of risk. Mm -hmm. Putting that to the provinces and making it up to them to decide whether or not to ban home growing, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, it, it looks as though it's a federal issue. Ultimately, the, the feds want to be able to have uh, unified regulations across Canada. And although some provinces, uh, well, Quebec specifically, is attempting to ban home growing, it's to this point, it's not actually within their purview to be able to do that. Uh, but that won't prevent them from trying. And, right. and certainly the perception of increased enforcement costs, it, it seems like home growing, whether it was legitimized or not, is a very difficult thing to police. Uh, because without warrants, you can't just go into people's houses and check their plants and see how many there are. But important to recognize that, especially in the province of British Columbia, there are likely 20 to 40,000 grows going on in residences uh, across this province today. So it, it, it certainly won't make it any worse, uh, but it, it may make it somewhat better. So we could probably spend a couple of hours digesting the strengths and weaknesses of the eventual passage of this law. But as it, as it gets going, and I think we, we're going to look at next week as being a, quite a turning point on it. In your view, Dan, what are the big gaps that remain in, in what legislation like this does and what is sort of remaining? Well, I think one of the big questions on cannabis consumers' minds especially uh, is the market for concentrates and edible products. Right. So I didn't actually realize this, but I learned last week that that is hardwired into the current legislation with an outside limit of 12 months to yeah. bring on uh, regulation around those concentrate products. These are important to cannabis users, I think both medical and recreational, because they inhibit the amount of plant material that you need to consume, especially through smoke inhalation. By only legalizing flowered cannabis, you're essentially saying the Canadian government endorses smoking joints, but they don't endorse vaporization, they don't endorse edible cannabis, and they don't endorse low-dose usage of higher concentrate products. Why do you think that didn't happen? Largely due to complexity. I think that that's an entire new product segment, and uh, it is it is difficult to regulate, especially with the sort of perception that potency limits are an important part of this. The irony is that although these concentrate products do have far higher potency than flowered cannabis, they can also be consumed in far lower quantities. So actually what you're getting is a p more pure delivery of cannabinoids without the necessity to inhale, you know, this tar and other products that come from smoking. So it's almost like the material. evolution of a product line, right? You kind of, you, you, you manufacture a car that's kind of rickety. And then eventually you get a smooth riding electric vehicle that lasts forever. <laughs> that, that analogy plays well uh, for, for senatorial process as well as cannabis product development and, and changes in those timelines. Yeah. I'm curious too, because there's been uh, 
even a, a government-led sort of campaign against smoking generally. And I think culturally, there's maybe a perception that smoking's bad. So are retailers, producers maybe going to be missing out on an opportunity to attract people who would be new entrants to the market simply because edibles are not yet on the table? They will for a year. And I think that the message from government is start low and go slow. The product SKUs will diversify over time. We're giving producers a chance to diversify their But is it going to inhibit people from trying what, you, I, what you've often told us on this program is actually a, a kind of a better, clearer, more precise, um, more precise drug? For the first year, it absolutely will. Might it might it do so like in a lengthy period where you know you 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 someone who hasn't tried cannabis or hasn't tried it in decades perhaps experiences the smoked version doesn't really have the great experience for whatever reason and then says well uh, you know I'm that's it I'm off it is there a possibility that that behavior could take place. Uh, absolutely. And and I think that that draws an interesting analogy to the edible lines that are, are currently unregulated, but are certainly prolific. It's not difficult for Vancouverites, especially to access edible cannabis, but those dosages have been uh, designed for experienced users. Yeah. So there's this thing that happens when someone gets a, a 50 milligram edible, a 50 milligram of THC edible, they don't really know what 50 milligrams of THC will do to them. Uh, and where a, a dose that would be low enough to not inhibit, you know, a, a panic response or a feeling of overdose, but would certainly elicit a psychoactive effect being, you know, perhaps between five and 10 milligrams, a 50, yeah. ma- 50 milligram edible, edible is enough to put most inexperienced users in a place where they never want to try that product again. Yeah. The BC government and the federal government have both talked about the importance of educating the consuming public about this, what cannabis is, what it isn't, the different kinds do you think that that responsibility is going to fall more to government or is it going to fall more to the frontline sellers and distributors? Well, the way we think through that problem is that Tantalus Labs will be addressing a variety of different use cases. And it's really important, especially for those early use cases, that we help people understand how to reduce their risk of an unpleasant experience. Uh, the risk of cannabis overdose in terms of the life-threatening issue is, is well, it's not historically been recorded once. Uh, and any hospital visits associated with cannabis use or cannabis misuse usually imply that you go and sit in hospital, take some muscle relaxants, relaxants and the doctors laugh at you for a few hours. Um, but there certainly are products that are available even in the flower category that have a lower psychoactive effect and, and a higher, perhaps, uh, at least perception of other therapeutic benefit. Uh, one particular compound within the cannabis plant called cannabidiol CBD uh, has been known to elicit far more uh, relaxed use cases. Let's put it that way. And so I think it's really critical that producers that want a touch a variety of use cases have products in that segment, have products in a low THC segment, and then for more experienced users, a higher THC segment as, as well. As you perceive the legislation when it's enacted, are you as a producer going to be able to properly educate people about it? Will there be anything, when I say properly, I don't just mean that you're going to be able to create the information, but are you going to be able to adequately distribute it as part of your marketing of products? Absolutely. Consumer education, not just on potential effect, but also on production methodology, absence of pesticides, purity, quality assurance standards. These are really critical parts. So the government's gotten out of the way of that piece anyway. 
Uh, when it comes to how the product is grown and where it's grown, there are no restrictions on the conversations that producers can have with their end user. It's just when you get into the territory of saying, this is a really great cannabis to help you fight cancer. Those are, you know, specious claims. There's, there's a lack of clinical trial data. There's a lack of quantifiable resource. And, and ultimately I think it not only falls to the producer, but to the end user themselves, there is good information on cannabis out there. And people need to go out and do their research to prevent in a recreational instance, an unpleasant uh, outcome, or in a medical instance, an over-reliance on cannabis as some kind of panacea, which it is certainly not. You mentioned earlier that cannabis brands will be prevented from placing their branding on non-cannabis related products. What kind of an impact is that going to have? Uh, I think it's a mild frustration. I think that uh, giving people a chance, I mean, the, the way we talk about our brand is often in the context of sustainable cannabis production, high purity cannabis. And these are messages that actually provide a lot of social benefit. So people who we have this, we have this great baseball cap that says sun grown on it. It's not actually a promotional tool for channelist labs as much as it is a promotional tool for our production methodology. And every time one of my friends wears one, they get five questions. What is sun grown? What are you guys talking about? And it gives them a chance to launch into a a pitch that I've honed with them carefully (laughs) uh, to talk about the importance of, of greenhouse cannabis production from a sustainability context, which I think is really important to British Columbians, especially and Canadians in general. Uh, So yeah, it's, it's just, uh, another attempt to sort of prevent the the sexification of cannabis, which I understand, but there will be unintended social implications that I think will be negative. So listen, uh, at the risk of generalizing politically on this one, there's no question that one of the calculations Justin Trudeau made in determining that we were going to move to this regime of legalization was that it was going to hook for him a millennial voter. And, uh, and there's no doubt that he, he you know, Failed the test around uh, proportional representation, uh, so he, you know, put at risk maybe some of those people. Um, he wants to make sure that he doesn't lose this cohort. It's it's invaluable to him uh, in terms of his political longevity. Do you think that what we have emerging as a as a regime with cannabis is going to satisfy that millennial that 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 is looking for? maybe a, a, a pretty hands-off kind of situation? Or, or is it going to still feel like like mom and dad are, are regulating you? It, it, it certainly will be far more restrictive than the preference of, I think, an average millennial cannabis user. And that's very much me speculating on a, a broad sure. swath of a demographic yeah, yeah. We're, that we're, I happen to belong to. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. And, and I think the message from government is that this is version one and we're going to continue to iterate. But I just... I think from a public health and safety perspective, the government is being really heavy handed. They're controlling their risk in an exceptional way from an international politics perspective, but inhibiting market growth or inhibiting facilitation of this nascent industry will have negative impacts on smaller cannabis companies that are looking to come in and compete with uh, sort of these large industrial monoliths that are gearing up to be able to supply commodity grade cannabis across the board. Uh, and, And moreover, there is something exceedingly paternalistic 
about all of this regulation. The risk profile of cannabis likely does not justify the amount of restriction that's being put into uh, this legislation. And I think it's going to take us some time to demonstrate that. And that's what, you know, it's important for users and producers to take on that responsibility that we need to prove that this is not going to be blood in the streets and some kind of, you know, socially destructive new legalization platform, but that that will take time for government to figure out. And I think the key point that a lot of people are missing on this is that the world is watching. Yeah. I was privileged to speak at a conference in the UK uh, last week, uh, and I've spoken to many Americans, Europeans, various other people that are looking to Canada for the most boring conservative legislation around cannabis legalization to justify, okay, not only can we create tax revenue out of this product that's currently untaxed and driving revenues to uh, illicit suppliers, but we can also do it in a socially responsible way that we can avoid the mistakes that we've made with tobacco and alcohol. We don't, uh, we're not creating reefer madness. We're, we're, we're certainly not creating reefer madness. How many times have you seen that movie, by the way? Have you I've seen s- it? I've seen it one time and I turned it off. It's a hilarious movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, to that point, uh, we're certainly going to be watching too what happens next week. And we'll have lots to talk to you about, I'm sure, in a couple weeks when we have you back. But for now, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. That's Dan Sutton, founder and managing director at Tantalus Labs. Surrey Board of Trade CEO Anita Huberman is going to join us next to talk about cannabis in the workplace. Well, we all know that the legalization of recreational cannabis is coming on later this year. We have details on how it's going to be sold, how it's going to be distributed, how it's supposed to be enforced at least. But what's unclear is how employers will be dealing with cannabis impairment at the workplace. The Surrey Board of Trade has developed a new guidebook to help employers manage workers who could potentially be using medical and non-medical marijuana while they're on the job. Joining us today to discuss to discuss this, it is Anita Huberman. She's a CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, thanks for joining us on the show once again. Thank you. So going forward, though, I, I mean, what have been kind of the missing guideposts for a lot of employers as we get closer to legalization of recreational cannabis? The number one thing that's been missing in this dialogue about uh, legalization of cannabis is around what employers need uh, in terms of workplace tools. Uh, what are the rights of employers to even ask if they're using uh, medical cannabis or recreational cannabis? What is the line in terms of uh, employment standards and human rights legislation, making sure that employers are not sent to court by their staff uh, who have inappropriately been asked uh, about using cannabis. So we are trying to fill that gap here at the Surrey Board of Trade uh, as we approach legalization of cannabis. Last week, we released an employer support guide uh, around uh, legalization of cannabis, what to do, what to watch out for, and how to strengthen impairment policies. And more than that, we provided a sample impairment policy that employers can cut and paste. In general, would you say, Anita, that employers right now are feeling perhaps without much power and control as legalized cannabis arrives? I think there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. I mean, it's already happening. Let's be realistic about it. 
but uh, when it comes to legalization, I think employers and what we're hearing is they're fearing that productivity is going to be compromised, that um, they don't know what questions to ask, uh, what are their legal requirements. I think there's just so, so much fear, so much uncertainty out there. And uh, both levels of government, the province and the feds, have have somewhat ignored the business community around this issue. Hmm. What about the factor just that we have both medical marijuana as well as recreational cannabis? Is that going to be proving to be a bit of a line that a lot of employers are going to have to figure out how to tiptoe around when it comes to dealing with issues that may come up in the workplace? Well, medical cannabis is legal and uh, it's, it's, it's being used uh, for uh, specific uh, medical purposes. And uh, I, I think the number one thing that your listeners need to know is that any form of impairment in the workplace uh, will not be tolerated if it's going to impact productivity. Uh, the opportunity to strengthen human resource policies around impairment is right now. And within our employer support guide, taking a look at uh, communication mechanisms, education mechanisms, uh, you know, what is, what is allowed, what isn't allowed, and, and how to communicate to the employer if um, the employee is using medical cannabis. All of these things need to be looked at now before legalization. You hear anecdotally of how doctors uh, are, are getting very reluctant to prescribe to prescribe, uh, you know, uh, of course, painkillers uh, because of the opioid crisis, but then also um, uh, drugs that uh, that alter moods and so on for people that might be uh, having some mental health issues. Uh, is there a worry among employers that cannabis becomes kind of a default medication that's out there, and and as a result, you're going to get a lot of people who are frankly just using it to to deal with daily life. Again, uh, there's so much uncertainty out there. Every single individual that is using uh, cannabis is going to respond and react differently. And uh, as it relates to dealing with daily life, mental health issues and such, I, I, I think right from the outset, if, uh, if you're hiring an employee, uh, it, it needs to be brought up right, right in the beginning mm -hmm. and in an ongoing, consistent way that if you are, are utilizing or using something that is going to compromise productivity, that employer is going to be open to dialoguing uh, with that employee. Again, uh, every single business, whether you're running a manufacturing plant or, or a bank, for example, uh, every workplace is going to be different from a, a legal perspective. But I think um, the, re the response to using medical cannabis uh, is going to be different for every single person. Yeah, but what are the experts telling the board about, um, about what are the rights of employers in terms of uh, asking these ki kinds of questions and having this sort of dialogue? Where, where are the lines being drawn here, do you think? Well, you know, that is a, such a good question uh, because we're still trying to figure that out. The proponents of, of the legalization of cannabis, and I just moderated a panel in Kamloops about it last weekend, uh, you know, they're saying that, uh, you know, just have an open dialogue. 
Uh, others are saying that you need to be careful uh, so that you don't actually pass that line of human rights legislation. So if you're a manufacturing firm, you're operating machinery, uh, and uh, and something is going to be compromised there by using medical cannabis, you need to, the employer needs to have some tools, some guidelines on um, on what to ask so that they don't compromise their human rights. But uh, all we're saying at the Surrey Board of Trade is that any form of impairment uh, will not be tolerated in the workplace. And uh, we've off- offered some, some guidelines on how to do that. And if we are thinking about impairment, though, you know, alcohol impairments, uh, other substances, that's been, you know, something that employers have had to address for you know decades at this point. What does this think about cannabis, though? I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, aside from the fact that it is becoming legalized, the recreational version, is there something different the way that we have to approach it versus just the policies that would already be in place for other substance impairments questions that are out there right now for employers? Well, what the Surrey Board of Trade has found based upon our research is that cannabis stays longer in the system and thus impacting uh, focus, uh, productivity in the workplace. As I mentioned before, every person responds differently uh, under the influence. And uh, so and it's the same with alcohol, but cannabis is just uh, really uh, something new. Um, it's a very transformative shift uh, within our economy and our workplaces for this substance to be legal, like alcohol. And I think we're all going to work through it together and it's going to be a process. Well, Anita, uh, we're going to be paying a lot of attention to this moving forward, and we can't wait to get your thoughts as this summer approaches and even more questions are bound for employers. But uh, for now, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. That's Anita Haberman. She's the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade, and that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher, and don't forget to to leave a review. And be sure to find our stories in print and online at BIV.com. 